we have a crisis in the world, tremendous crisis, and also crisis in our consciousness, in us. I see the urgency of change, radical revolution, mutation in the mind. I see it. It is necessary. There is complete quietness of the mind, and that which is silent has vast space. Only then that which is nameless comes into being. This is Urgency of Change, the Krishnamurti podcast. You are the entire humanity. So if you are violent, you are contributing to violence. If you have ended sorrow, then you are bringing about freedom from the human mind's sorrow. Hello and welcome to episode 218 of Urgency of Change. Each episode of the Krishnamurti podcast features carefully selected extracts from the archives. The aim is to represent different aspects of Krishnamurti's radical approach to many of the issues and questions we all face in our lives. This week's theme is Humanity. Upcoming themes are Clarity, Continuity and Quiet. This is a podcast from Krishnamurti Foundation Trust. Please visit our website at kfoundation.org where you can find a broad collection of articles and quotes, an introduction and biography, along with a comprehensive index of topics for easy access to texts and recordings. Our online store stocks all available Krishnamurti books and ships worldwide. You can also find our regular quotes and videos on Instagram, TikTok and Facebook at Krishnamurti Foundation Trust. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review or rating on your podcast app. This helps our visibility. This week's episode on humanity has four sections. The first extract is from Krishnamurti's third talk in Ojai, 1983, titled Can Humanity Live Peacefully? Why has man, woman, suffered for centuries. Why are we suffering now? What is suffering? And what's the cause of it? And can there be ever an end to tears, to human misery, to unhappiness, to the grief that we carry throughout life? We are looking at it, not becoming sentimental, romantic, tearful, but we are actually facing this fact that human beings, whether they are rich or poor, whether they are 
high position or low. They have all, all human beings throughout the world suffer. That's a fact, undeniable, true fact. Some escape from it through Christian dogmatism of some person suffering for whole of mankind for their sin, all that also the original sin is invented by thought. So we try to overcome sorrow because of various reasons. Wars have created sorrow in the world. And there are still wars going on. How many th- millions of women and men and wives and girls have cried through wars? So there is suffering of whole of humanity. And also there is suffering of persons, of separate individuals. The word individual means indivisible, not fragmented. But we are (coughs) fragmented, broken up. So we are not the word individual means not only word unique, but not being broken up, fragmented. So we are not individuals, but that's another statement which we have to go into another time if we have time. So persons, separate persons, and the whole world have suffered through wars, through great starvation, poverty of mind, poverty of body, and Revolutions have tried to change the social structure, but they have not succeeded. But through that revolution, killing millions of people, that too has brought great sorrow in the world. Perhaps some of you may not be suffering, now, but look at the world as it is. You suffer when you don't fulfil. You suffer when you see a poor man. You suffer when you see great ignorance, 
prevailing in the world, not ignorance of books and so on, the ignorance of the actual fact that the war destroys human beings. You see all the generals, the politicians throughout the world accumulating the materials of war. And when you see all that, talk to some of them, that is sorrow of their ignorance. So what we are asking, can man live on this earth peacefully without suffering? Please ask that question of yourself on the journey you and the speaker are taking together. Why do we suffer? The loss of a son, the loss of a husband, wife, divorce, you know, the various forms symptoms of suffering. I am one is not beautiful, somebody else is beautiful. You know the whole business of sorrow. And can it ever end? To go into this question together, what's the find, to find out what's the root of it? As long as there is separation, division, there must be conflict, and conflict brings about sorrow. As long as I, as one, <coughs> is separate from his wife, not biologically but psychologically, inwardly, when there is that separation between the two people, however intimate they are, and that separation, that division, brings about conflict. And conflict is the very nature of sorrow. Because in that conflict we are destroying each other. I wonder if you follow this. When I when one quarrels with one's wife, or when you possess your wife, and the wife possess you, or when you are attached to her and she attached to you, that very attachment brings conflict, jealousy, anxiety, pain, sorrow. So, can two people live together? 
without conflict, which is a very, very fundamental question, a very complex question. Can two people, can a group of people, you see the very word group means divided, can people, humanity, live together on this world, in this, on this earth? It's their earth, it's our earth, not the American earth or the Russian earth. It's our earth. Can we live together without conflict? I may have, I may have hurt you, and you may have hurt me. Why should we keep that going? Why should we keep that record of pain? One has lost one's son, one loved that son, or the brother, or the husband, what you will. And there is shedding of tears, trying to escape from the actual fact that he or she is gone, and feeling the pain, the anxiety, the loneliness of it, trying to escape from that loneliness. But you may escape, but it's always there, deep in one's heart and in the deep recesses of one's own brain. What are we holding on to? The image, the memory, the past. We never seem to let go that image, the past. There is a constant memory, reminder of a photograph or a remembered incident. And if we say, if we are aware of this, put away the photographs and the memories, then one may feel disloyal. And which is again such a false sentiment. The fact is that while we lived together there was a division between us. And that division has brought great conflict and some happy memories. Both are remembrances recorded, and those records keep on repeating endlessly. And it's a constant reminder So when one watches 
without any motive, without any sense of direction, just to watch this whole movement of suffering. Not only one's own suffering, but the whole of humanity suffering, of which we are part. No, we are we are humanity. If you understand your own sorrow, watching it like a precious jewel. Then that very observation and observation of that with that clarity and purity can only come when there is no sense of escape from it. Then there is an ending of that suffering. Then you are not contributing to the world sorrow. That means you are no longer separate from the rest of humanity. You are no longer an American, Russian, Chinese, all the silly tribal divisions. You are the entire humanity. So if you are violent, you are contributing to violence. If you have ended sorrow, then you are help you are bringing about freedom from the human mind, human brain, sorrow. Without understanding the nature of sorrow, love cannot be. If I suffer, how can I love? I know the tradition is that suffering is part of love. Like jealousy is part of love. Jealousy is not love, nor hate. nor ambition, nor trying to become somebody psychologically in the... So love is something that is not all the human, all the movement of thought. Love is not a remembrance, is it? Ask, please. We are asking that question each other. How can I, there be compassion if I'm attached to a particular ideal and you are attached to a particular ideal? That is, where there is a limited outlook on life, 
not one's, one's particular life, but life, life, the life in, the, in nature, all the loveliness of nature, from the tiniest thing to the great elephant and to the tiger. I was, the speaker was once very close to a tiger. Not in the zoo, thank God. But in the forest. It was the most extraordinary thing to see it. Where there is love, the self is not. Pity is not love. Going out and helping the poor, whether in India or here, the social work, that's pity. Generosity. But love has its own generosity. Compassion cannot exist if I am a Catholic, Protestant, Hindu, Buddhist and all the rest of it. And where there is compassion, there is, it has its own intelligence. So this is the whole business of life. Not this battle with each other. Not this constant dread of insecurity, anxiety, loneliness, pain, and the pursuit of pleasure. Life is a whole movement, unbroken. The second extract is from the first talk in Calcutta, 1982, titled You Are Humanity. So, please, most respectfully, consider all this. Because we are concerned with your life as a human being. And that life, our daily living, has become extraordinarily complex. Extraordinarily dangerous. Difficult. Uncertain. The future of man is really at stake. This is not a threat. This is not a pessimistic point of view. The crisis is not only physical, but the crisis is in consciousness, in our being. So please, in talking over together, become aware of all this. 
So in becoming aware you begin to discover, you begin to find out for yourself how your life has become such pain, such anxiety, such uncertainty. If you are so aware we can then proceed further deeply more and more. But if we merely listen to the words and have and words have very little meaning. Words have certain significance. But if one lives in words, as most people do, in symbols, in myths, in romantic nonsense, then we make life more and more difficult, more and more dangerous for each other. So please be good enough to listen, to find out, to question, to doubt, so that your own brain becomes aware of itself. So we are asking why human beings who have developed the most marvelous technology the world has ever known, easy communication, electricity, sanity, and so on. We don't have to go into all that. But psychologically, inwardly, we remain as we have been more or less for the last 40,000 years. Inwardly. I wonder if one realizes that. We have systems, we have ideals, we have all the so-called sacred books, which are not sacred at all, they are just words. Why human beings, which is you, have not radically brought about a change, a psychological revolution? And we are going to inquire into that, and whether it is possible to bring about total mutation in the brain cells themselves. I hope this is clear, that we are talking about human condition and whether that condition can be radically changed, bring about a mutation in that, not transformation. Transformation means transforming from one form to another form. But we are talking about the radical change of human behavior, so that he is not terribly self-centered as he is. 
which is causing such great destruction in the world. If one is aware, and one hopes that you are, aware of your condition, then we can begin to ask whether that conditioning can be totally changed, so that a man is completely free. Now he thinks he is free to do what he likes. Each individual thinks he can do what he likes all over the world. And his freedom is based on choice, because he can choose where to live, what kind of work he can do, choose between this idea and that idea, this ideal or that ideal, change from one god to another god, from one guru to another, one philosopher from another. This capacity to choose, he brings him the, uh, the concept of freedom. But in the totalitarian states there is no freedom. You can't do what you want to do. It's totally controlled. So, choice is not freedom. Choice is merely moving in the same field from one corner to another. Is this clear? I hope you are following all that is being said. So. Our brain being limited, we're asking, is it possible to free the brain, for the brain to free itself so that there is no fear, completely no fear? We have right relationship with each other, man, woman, right relationship with all the neighbors in the world. So we are going to ask the nature of our consciousness. Our consciousness is what you are. Your belief, your ideals, your gods, your Violence, fear, myths, romantic concepts, your pleasure, your sorrow, and the fear of death, and the everlasting question of man, which has been from time immemorial, whether there is something sacred beyond all this. 
That is your consciousness. That's what you are. You are not different from your consciousness. So we are asking whether that the content of that consciousness can be transformed, can be totally changed. First, your consciousness is not yours. Your consciousness is the consciousness of all humanity. Because what you think, what your beliefs, your sensations, your reactions, your pain, your sorrow, your insecurity, your gods and so on, is shared by all humanity. Go to America, go to England, Europe or Russia, China, human beings suffer. They are frightened of death. They have beliefs, they have ideals. They speak a particular language, but the thinking, the feeling, the reactions, the responses generally is shared by all human beings. This is a fact, not merely the invention or speculation of the speaker. This is a fact that you suffer, your neighbour suffers, that neighbour may be thousands of miles away, he suffers. He's insecure, as you are. You may have a lot of money, but inwardly there is insecurity. So is the rich man in America, or the man in power, they all go through this pain, anxiety, loneliness, despair. So your consciousness is not yours any more than your thinking is not individual thinking. Thinking is common, is general. From the poorest man, the most uneducated, unsophisticated man in the little tiny village to the most sophisticated brain, the great scientists, they all think. They may think differently. Maybe their thinking may be more complex. But thinking is, is general, shared by all human beings. Therefore it's not your individual thinking. This is rather difficult to see and recognize the truth of it, because we are so conditioned as individuals. All your religious books, whether Christian or Muslim and other religious books, 
they all sustain and nourish this idea, concept of an individual. You have to question that. You have to find out the truth of the matter. <coughs> and we are investigating together. And we see that every human being in the world, however miserable, however low in the structure of society, and the great philosophers of the world, great scientists, all think. And again, human consciousness is similar, is shared by all human beings. Therefore there is no individual outside, peripheral, he may be more educated, more, he may be taller, he may be shorter, outside, outside the skin as it were, he may be different, but inwardly he shares the common, he shares the ground of all humanity. This is a fact, if you examine it very closely, but if you are frightened, if you are caught in the conditioning of being an individual, you will never understand the immensity and the extraordinary fact that you are the entire humanity. From that there is love, compassion, intelligence. But if you are merely conditioned to the idea that you are individual, then you have endless complications because it's based on an illusion, not on fact. The, the illusion may be thousands of years, but it's still an illusion. You are the result of your environment, you are the result of your, the language you speak, you are the result of the food you eat, the clothes, the climate, the tradition, handed down from generation to generation. You are all that. You are the product of the society which you have created. Society is not different from you. Man has created this society, the society of greed, envy, hatred, brutality, violence, wars. He has created all that and also he has created the extraordinary world of technology. So you are the world and the world is you. So you are the world and the world is you. Your consciousness is not yours, it's the common, it is the ground on which all human beings share. All human beings think, 
So you are actually not an individual. That's one of the realities, truths that one must understand. Not accept what the speaker is saying, but question your own isolation, because individual means isolation. To separate himself from another. Like nations isolate themselves as Indians and all the rest of it. And they think in isolation there is security. There is no security in isolation. But the governments of the world representing humanity of each country, they are maintaining this isolation. And therefore they are perpetuating war. So, if you recognize the truth, the fact that you are not an individual, You may be short, you may be tall, you may have a different... But inwardly there is no division. We all share the same problems. When you recognize that truth, And I hope you do. Then the problem is can you, as a human being, representing all humanity, bring about a fundamental psychological revolution? You might say, if I as a human being change, will it affect in any way the rest of mankind? That's the usual question. I may change, I may radically bring about a mutation in the mind, which we'll go into presently. If I do change, if there is a change in a particular person, how will it affect the whole consciousness of mankind? question to yourself. Even as a single, isolated human being, which you are not, even if you think so, you are asking, if I change, will, what effect has it in the world? You know they are making experiments in the scientific world, 
of which perhaps some of you may have heard, we were talking with, a, with one of those people who are experimenting, that a certain sp rats in a particular place, say for instance, a, a group of rats in London, They are experimenting with that group of rats. If the one generation of rats learns a particular lesson very slowly, it takes many generations to learn the completely. But their next generation learns much quicker. It is not genetic transformation. It's not genetic action, but a, a generation of five or ten rats, the last generation, the latest generation, learns the lesson far quicker in a couple of days. Now, they are doing the same experiment in Australia, same experiment in America and other places, those rats which have learned much quicker in London affect the whole group of rats' consciousness. You understand this? Am I making it clear? No. No? How easily you say no. One group of rats one generation learns a lesson very slowly. <coughs> Their next generation learns a little faster, and so on. The last generation, say 25 generations, the last generation learns the lesson in a couple of hours. Now, what they have learnt in a couple of hours, it transmitted to all the rats in the world. They are experimenting with that. And it is not a genetic transformation, but a group consciousness is being affected. You understand this? That's simple enough. I'm not going to explain further. If you don't understand, you better study. So the question is, if you change, fundamentally, you affect the whole consciousness of man. Napoleon affects the whole consciousness of Europe. Stalin affected the whole consciousness of Russia and human beings all over the world like the Christian saviour. He has affected the consciousness of the world. And the Hindus with their peculiar gods have affected the consciousness of the world. So, when you as a human being radically transform psychologically, that is, 
be free of fear, have right relationship with each other. The ending of sorrow and so on, which is a radical transformation, which we shall go into presently, then you affect the whole consciousness of man. <coughs> so it is not <coughs> an individual affair, it's not a selfish affair, it's not individual salvation. It's the salvation of all human beings, of which you are. The third extract is from Krishnamurti's fifth talk in Sanan, 1981, titled, What is going to happen to humanity? We must ask this question, whether the brain, though in the modern world one has to specialize, whether it is possi possible to allow the brain to operate wholly, completely. That's one of the problems. We're going to discuss this morning. And the other problem is, what is going to happen to humanity, to all of us, when the computer, which is, which can outthink man accurately, much more quickly, rapidly, and If that can do, as the computer experts are saying it can, with the help of the robot, man will then only have a couple of hours of work a day. This is going to happen within the next 5, 10, 20 years. Then, what will man do? Either he is going to follow the entertainment field, which is already taking place, sports are becoming more and more and more important, if you watch the television. Entertainment, different forms, football, you know, all that is happening. And also religious entertainment. Either humanity is going to follow the whole movement of entertainment, or is going to turn inwardly. which is not an entertainment, which demands much greater capacity of observation, examination, non-personal perception, and so on, inwardly. 
these are the two possibilities. And this is happening already. The entertainment world is going to take over the cinemas and all the rest of it. Or the computer can formulate a new religion, putting all the religions together, synthesize, bring out something totally new. And humanity, either, which is another form of entertainment, will follow that, or enter into something totally different. That's one problem. And the other is the whole content of our consciousness is basically fear, pleasure, the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of fear and the suffering of mankind. That's the basic content of our human consciousness with its varieties. Right? These are the three problems that we are man is facing. If humanity is going to follow entertainment, it's very simple. And I hope, one hopes, these gatherings are not a form of entertainment. And also, whether the brain can be totally free so as to function wholly. Because any specialization, any following a certain path, certain groove, certain uh, pattern, must inevitably make the brain function partially and therefore limited energy. I hope. We are thinking together about all this. And we live in a world of specialization. Engineers, physicists, surgeons, carpenters, you know, the whole mechanical world, and also specialization of a particular belief of a particular dogma, rituals, are all specializations. And those certain specializations which are necessary, like surgeons, carpentry, and so on, whether that in spite of that specialization, whether the brain can function completely, wholly, not partially, and therefore have tremendous energy. I hope we are following each other, we are thinking together. Right? Is this a problem at all? 
to any of us. Or the speaker is imposing the problem on you. We have so many problems, I don't know why we have so many problems, but don't let's add another problem to already innumerable other problems. This is, I think, a very serious question which we have to inquire together. If you observe your own activity, one's own activity, you will find more and more that the brain functions only in a very, the brain operates only very partially, very, very little. And therefore, our energy becomes less and less and less as we grow older. Biologically, physically, when we are young, we are full of this vitality. But as we are get educated, follows a, a livelihood, you need specialization. That brain becomes small, narrow, limited, and therefore the energy becomes less and less and less. But it has its own vitality, right? So we are asking whether that brain, though it may have to have certain form of specialization, not necessarily religious, because that's superstition, we can put all that out. Whether I suppose I'm a surgeon, I have to specialize. Whether in spite of that, the brain can f operate wholly. It can operate only wholly, completely, with all the tremendous vitality of million years behind it, only when it is completely free. You, I hope is this somewhat. Are we meeting each other? As a question, we are going to inquire whether the brain can ever be totally free, in spite of the specialization, which is necessary for a livelihood. And it may not be necessary if the computer takes everything, takes over. It won't take over surgery, obviously. It won't take over the feeling of beauty. Looking at the evening stars, the Orion and the Pleiades and so on. But it may take over other functions altogether, right? So can the human mind brain be totally free? You understand me? Without any form of attachment. Because attachment of any kind, physical, by attachment to certain belief, experience, and so on, can the brain be so completely free 
If the brain cannot be so totally free, it will begin to deteriorate. Because when it is occupied with problems, with uh, specialization, livelihood, and so on, so on, it's active. The brain is active. But when the computer takes over this activity, the brain will have less and less problems and therefore gradually deteriorate. Right? This is happening. It's not something in the future. It's actually happening now when you observe your own, one's own activity. Right? So the question is one of the, we have to find an answer to whether the brain can be totally free and therefore function altogether, not partially. And whether our consciousness, with its content, basically fear, the pursuit of pleasure, and all the implications of that, and grief, pain, sorrow, being hurt inwardly, and so on. That's the basic content of one's consciousness. Right? You may have other for other forms of consciousness, group consciousness, racial consciousness, national consciousness, the consciousness of a particular group, the consciousness of the Catholic group, the Hindu group, and so on, so on. But basically, the consciousness with its content is fear, pleasure, pursuit of pleasure, pain, sorrow, death. Right? This is the central content of, of our consciousness. Right? We are thinking together, please. Right? We have thinking together, examining together. We are, the speaker is not laying down anything. We are together observing the whole phenomenon of existence, human existence. That's our existence, as we pointed out earlier. We are mankind, because our consciousness, whether it is a Christian living in the Western world, or in the Middle East, or in the Asiatic world, that consciousness, is ba- its content is basically fear, pursuit of pleasure, pain, hurt, sorrow, and the never-ending burden of all this. So we our consciousness is not personal, mine. This is very difficult to accept because we have been so conditioned, so educated that it is we resist this eye 
this actuality, which means we are not individuals at all, we are the whole of mankind, is not a romantic idea, it is not a philosophical concept, it is not absolutely an idea. It is, if one examines it closely, it is, an, it is a fact. So we are going to together find out whether the brain can be free from its from the content of its consciousness, right? Sirs, why do you listen? Why do you listen to the speaker? Or in the in listening to the speaker, you are listening to yourself, right? Is that what is taking place? The speaker is only pointing out, is acting as a mirror in which you see actually yourself. The actuality of your one's own consciousness, not the description of which the speaker is pointing out, not the description, which becomes merely an idea, if you merely follow the description. But through the description, you yourself perceive actually your own state of mind, brain, your own consciousness. Then the listening to the speaker has certain importance. But if you are merely listening to the speaker as as a telephone, then it has very little value. Right? So please don't say to yourself at the end of these talks and question and answers, I haven't changed. Why have not changed? It's your fault. You have spoken for so many sixty years perhaps, and I have not changed. Is it the fault of the speaker, or you have not been able to apply it? And so, if you don't apply, naturally, it's the fault of the speaker. Then you become cynical and do all kinds of absurd things. So please bear in mind that we are listening not to the speaker, but through the description and the words, we are looking at our own consciousness. 
which is the consciousness of all humanity. The Western world may believe in a certain symbol, religiously, certain figure, certain rituals. And the Eastern world also has the same thing, but behind it the same fear, the same pursuit of pleasure, grief, pain, being hurt, wanting this and what. If the whole of that is the movement of common humanity, right? So, in listening, we are learning about ourselves, not following the description and therefore learning the description, but actually learning to look and therefore help bringing about a total freedom in which the the whole of the brain cannot operate. Right? After all, sir, meditation, love and compassion is the operation of the whole of the brain. When there is when there is the operation of the whole, there is integral order. Right? And when there is integral or inward order, there is total freedom. And it is only then that what can that there can be something which is timelessly sacred. That's not a reward. That's not something to be achieved. But that comes about that which is eternally timeless, sacred, only when there is the opera, when the brain is totally free to function wholly, and in that wholeness there is order, and so freedom. The final extract in this episode is from the third talk in Madras, 1974 titled, The Stream of Humanity. Then what is, <clears throat> what is immortality? If there is nothing permanent, the me is not permanent. It's just a series of structural w- words, feelings, put together, held together by thought. And that has no reality, except in words, in attachments. <coughs> so, is there immortality 
when <coughs> when I meet death, when <coughs> when I have abandoned all attachment, when the mind has completely let go everything. <coughs> Are you doing it now? Or are you just listening to words? Then you will find, if you have gone deeply so far, <coughs> that there is … No, I won't tell you, because you are so copy-book-minded, but we'll approach it differently. What happens if you don't invite death – not commit suicide – if you don't invite death, what happens? You understand my question? There is a man who says, all right, I want to find out what it means to die. I know the physical organism dies, the form, the name, and that's inevitable. And psychologically there is no tomorrow. There is only tomorrow when there is attachment and dependency. And being free, therefore there is no tomorrow. And death is there is when there is death, there is no tomorrow. And what happens to those who do not enter into that area where Death has no meaning anymore. What happens to the vast majority of people? Are you following all this? Because that's, you are the vast majority of people. What happens to the vast majority of people who are attached, frightened, who cling to their Husbands because they are frightened of their loneliness or their wives, who think there is a permanent reality because they have traditionally it has been accepted and you follow in that rut. What happens to the all that vast majority of people? Have you ever thought about it? Which is yourself? That is, sir, there is a vast stream of humanity caught in this, in this confusion of possession, recognition, 
attachment, pain, suffering, endless conflict, the caught in this tree. And that stream is the collective stream, the collective culture of that stream, the collective literature, the collective painting, all that is in that stream. What happens? You understand, sir, my question? What happens to you if you don't step out of that stream? Have you asked yourself? What happens to you if you have never faced the reality of death? Not at the end when you are unconscious or grasping with breath and disease, not at that moment, while living fully alive, active, not asleep. What will happen to you if you do not step out of that stream? You will go on, won't you, in that stream, caught in that stream? That's the reality, right? That's a fact. If you face that fact, that you are caught in it, trapped in it, then you will do something. But if you say, well, all humanity is caught in it, let me also be in it, it's too much bother, needs a great deal of energy, I have no energy except to earn money and sex. Therefore, you never step out of that stream. And the stream goes on, and therein lies enormous sorrow with it, passion which is compassion. You understand? You understand, sir? If you have a son whom you love, Love means care. Give your heart to your son. Feed for him. And you understand the meaning of death and are stepping out of it. What do you feel for your son? Not emotion, not sentimentality. And you work for it. You say, look, for God's sake, look what you're doing. Passion comes with love. Now, when you come to this, what is eternity? What is immortality? That is, a state of mind which has no death at all, 
that what it means immortality, immortality, which is no death. You understand what I'm talking? No death. What is that state of mind that has no death? Not personal death, not my personal becoming immortal, that's nonsense. Because you are merely a set of words, ideas, ambitions, greed, trickery, chicanery, corruption. And that can't become immortal. Even the good that you have is part of that, the opposite of the bad and so on. All that is within the area of knowledge. But a mind that knows this sense of complete death of the Me, what is there? And to find that out, not from books, not from, from the speaker, from anybody, you have to understand this whole problem, live it, what it means, what is involved in sorrow, love, passion and death.